0: Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest Sarah Stanizai. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and the owner of Prospect Therapy, a queer and trans-affirming therapy practice with a special focus on mental health for first generation immigrant and bicultural communities. She is also on the board of the LA Bi Task Force, which promotes education, advocacy, and visibility for the bi community in Los Angeles. She regularly gives presentations and workshops on imposter syndrome in first generation Americans and is facilitating an Afghan. Americans Women's Therapy Group starting in November 2020. Today, I have on with me Sarah Stanizai. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and the owner of Prospect Therapy. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Josephine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So your group specializes in working with queer and trans-affirming therapy clients with a focus on mental health and first-generation immigrant and bicultural communities, and that's a very specific niche. And I'm just wondering how that came about in terms of what made you think about creating that specialty in your work?
1: Yeah, thank for asking. It's definitely been a process. I've been a therapist since 2012, but I started this practice in 2018. And it was just me at the time, but I knew that there were going to be more of us. And you've probably heard there's this running theme among therapists and psychologists that your ideal client is some younger version of yourself. And so that's really where I started. I actually came to private practice from working at LGBT centers and also working in forensics for seven years. So once you work in forensics, you can basically work with anybody. We were working in a county contracted agency. It was very intense. And I knew I wasn't going to build my practice around that. So it gave me the chance to really think about, well, who do I love working with? What parts of my own story have I worked through like what do I feel qualified and confident to do in my practice and that's kind of where that led me so my practice has from the beginning been a queer and trans focused practice and my family's from Afghanistan I was born in Los Angeles and that part of my identity was also something that you know for the past 10 years I've been working through just through my own identity development and I'm really happy with how this has turned out And I just found really great clinicians along the way who had similar interests and similar vibe and really strong skill set. And I invited them to come with me. And that's kind of the evolution of the practice so far. I don't see that part of it changing, but we're big enough now that we also, everybody has their own specialties within that and their own passion within that. So it's really a nice mix. So we have a focus on those communities and we also bring our own skills to it.
0: Got it. And I know you do not only individual therapy, but there is a bit of a focus on group therapy, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I personally am actually a couples therapist, couples and relationships. And that is my favorite thing to do. And I love working with couples. And I think it's because people get more honest when there's more than one person in the room. And that just naturally extends toward groups. And I've run groups for years. I think group therapy is magical and people have been asking for more groups and more groups are a little bit more accessible, but they're also a little intimidating. And so people know us and trust us enough that if they sign up for a group with us, the people in that group are kind of on the same wavelength. So it's a little bit less scary to go into a group setting. Yeah.
0: And is there something about the populations you work with, with queer or trans or first generation immigrants that for some reason, the group has a special meaning for them or kind of more of an impact? Yeah, that's a good question. I say this about
1: groups, but as therapists, we know that healing happens in witnessing. And when you multiply the witnessing, you multiply the healing. And so I think any community of people that has felt marginalized or oppressed or othered or separate in some way, we all really need to band together and finding other people like you when you're a queer person or a trans person. I'm bisexual, I'm cisgender, I'm not a trans person, but many of the therapists on our team, we all bring lived experience to the work that we do. So if you're in the LGBTQ plus community, if you're in the immigrant community or first or second gen community, particularly from collectivist cultures where we rely on community to help with everything, which is sometimes great and sometimes super inconvenient. Those are groups of people, those are groups that I belong to that when people around you, get it. It's healing just in itself. You don't even really need the therapy part at that point when people understand you and validate you and reflect your experience and you don't have to constantly justify or explain yourself. That can really lower <laughs> the anxiety. It makes you more confident in relationships. It makes you more confident at work. And so I just think that collective part of it is really magical.
0: Okay. And I guess what the listener might be wondering is how that is different than just getting together with a group of peers that you feel that you have similarities with, right? What is the role of the therapist or the group leader that might be different than just kind of a group getting together?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think the facilitator, I don't want to sound too much like an inspirational coffee mug, but the, the facilitator like holds that space and makes that container and is your If things get a little bit too one-sided or people get activated, which, you know, I'm not afraid of triggers or activations, like that's how we grow. I'm not going to, there's value in that as long as it's repaired, as long as there's somebody who's on your side, who sees what's happening and say like, hey, let's bring it back. Let's make this constructive. And you don't need to be a therapist to do that, but there does need to be someone who we all agree is like in charge to keep the space. I'm really proud to be a therapist. I'm happy that I went to school for it. I love the work that I do. But especially over the past few years, I've really embraced all other kinds of facilitation and healing. And there are practices and communities all over the world that don't have a master's degree or these pieces of paper that I have behind me who are really adept and skilled. And so I really focus on the listening and the containment so that people don't show up and there might be Strangers. I mean, even if they're friends just hanging out, like everybody has histories and people are telling ourselves stories about each other and what it means when this person didn't hear what I said, or are they ignoring me? And things can get kind of emotionally unruly and having someone in charge to make space for that. Like, I'm not here to protect everybody and be like, nobody hurt each other's feelings, but more so how can we use this to bring ourselves closer and more engaged? I could talk about that for a long time. So I don't know if that was a super long answer.
0: No, it makes sense. Thank you for for explaining. So I mean, the other thing about groups, and I know I don't want to spend the whole time talking about how groups work, because I want to get into the specifics of your groups. But I guess you would say the groups really only work when the members are willing to share. Yes, If you're someone who doesn't like to share, maybe you just wouldn't choose to be in a group either, (laughs) because it just wouldn't be something you'd be interested in.
1: So I have been running groups in my practice for the past couple years. And I do a lot of screening and consultations and everybody before they join group does have a private one-on-one therapy session with me ahead of time just so i know what everybody's bringing into the group and if there are things they want to make sure we cover or things they want to make sure we don't cover and i just like to know who's joining and i take a lot of care in doing that because we can come from all different walks of life we all have different experiences we hopefully have one or two things that are in common But the equalizer or the lowest common denominator in group is that people are willing to take a little bit of a risk, are willing to be vulnerable. Most often I hear people say, oh yeah, I don't mind helping people. Like I would love to be in group. But then when they're asked to be vulnerable or to receive help from others, they're like, no, I'm fine. (laughs) I'm like, well, group goes both ways. And when you are quiet, or you say everything is fine, you might think that that's being polite or not taking up too much space. But really what it's signaling to other people is, oh, they're keeping something to themselves. So maybe I should too. And that can really bring down the trust and intimacy in a group setting. And so all that to say is people do need to be willing to be vulnerable and to not only give, but also receive from people unexpectedly, people that they may not think can help them in some way. But that dynamic is what people take with them out into the world. And then they are more receptive in their relationships and in their personal relationships. If they're the one who is, no, I'm fine. How are you? They maybe will be less likely to do that and can actually show more of themselves.
0: Right. Well, I want to get into your groups and how how you work with them and kind of a little bit more about the work that's done in those groups. So what group do you want to start with? Because I know you have a few.
1: I do. I actually am only running one group right now. The first group that we started at Prospect Therapy was the Adult Children of Tiger Moms group, which was a way to bring... I have been working with first gens and immigrants for this whole time, one-on-one or in couples. And I found that I was saying very similar things to all my clients. And on top of that, I was like, oh, you clients are cool. Like, You should all know each other, but I can't tell you that. And so I thought it would be a great idea to create a group that is really about the first gen experience, about that bicultural experience, about not fitting in with your family, your home culture, or fitting in with mainstream American white culture and the things that we do at home to be successful and dutiful and bring pride to our family are great. I want people to keep doing those But those skills, when we take them out into the world, kind of don't translate. And people are like, I'm not very impressed that you, I don't know, are very religious or are so close with your family. Like, It doesn't really bring them the success and reinforcement that they're looking for. So they start to second guess themselves in corporate America or with their colleagues and classmates. And then similarly, the skills that make them successful out in the world following their passion and their career or choosing a partner who may or may not be part of their culture or religion, they're making themselves really happy. But when they bring those things home, the parents, like it doesn't register for them. And it's not that they don't love them or aren't happy for them. In most cases, it's just that the parents are coming from a place where there are three checkboxes whether you're successful or not. And these new things are not even on that list. And so they're like, I don't know what to make of this. That's great. You want to be an artist, like how much money are you going to make? And so then again, we really start to second guess ourselves. It goes in both directions. And so that's why I relate imposter syndrome to the first gen experience because in both environments, the way we see ourselves and the way others perceive us doesn't really match up. And that causes us to second guess ourselves and to lower our self-esteem and to feel like an imposter and say, well, if they really saw the real me, they would go screaming for the hills. Anyway, that group was for people who had very loving parents, but the trope of the tiger mom is actually not loving. It's actually somebody who's very demanding, who says A is not good enough. You have to get an A+. plus. If you're not doing six extracurricular things, you're not successful. And people struggle with that. Into adulthood, they're really grateful. Like nobody came to that group saying like, I hate my family. Everybody was saying I don't know how to relate to them. On the one hand, I'm really proud that I have these values and I'm, you know, I'm really far in my career because of it. But something's missing and I don't know what it is because I've checked all the boxes. And when I see my family or speak to them on the phone or see them a few times a year, it just feels kind of hollow and I'm kind of heartbroken because I did all this for them I mean and for me and yet there's some disconnect it's like they're not interested in what I have to say they don't care about my friends or my work and so I want to have a better relationship with them and I want to feel less anxious or depressed or lost or mm-hmm. unfulfilled and so that group started mm, I think maybe in 2018 or 19 and that has now evolved into my Afghan American women's group, which <laughs> seems so obvious. And I, it's like once you realize that you're like, oh, yeah, I should have been doing this the whole time. So the first group was really open to anybody. You know, Tiger Mom is a traditionally like Asian stereotype, but it was a lot of people from collectivist cultures, East Asian, South Asian, Latinx people were interested in that group. But this group is really focused on my own people on Afghan American women who have a lot of overlap with that. But then we also have a whole other set of experiences that I'm really excited to get into.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a very focused group, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what are your hopes to get out of that group? Oh my gosh. So I'm
1: asking everybody who joins that same question. And when I was formulating this idea, you know, I put a lot of attention and consideration into these group offerings. And that doesn't mean it's like completely scheduled out to the T for every five minutes of every group session. But it does mean that there are certain themes that keep coming up and certain exercises that I found helpful with my Afghan and other first gen clients through the years. But I remember, I mean, I remember doing some of these exercises one on one with people. And if it's staying with me, it means it's affecting people Mm -hmm. and it's working. And what most people are looking for is. Finding a connection to their culture that feels fulfilling. People are at different levels of connection to their Afghan heritage. But what's sort of unfortunate is we go through this whole journey of distancing ourselves from it and then really embracing it, but then finding that they are not embraced, especially for women, especially for people who may or may not be religious. And these stereotypes and things are reinforced, but they're actually not true. All the women I'm, I'm talking to are educated, feminine, like independent people. And there's all these like negative messages about what being Afghan mean. And the people around us are buying into them. Even our own people are buying into them at varying degrees. So people really want to heal that relationship with their heritage and specifically with other Afghan women. There is more than one way to be Afghan and Afghan American. And also to have a space to talk about and process Mm, maybe traumas that they've had that the people around them weren't equipped to handle. Relationships and dating is a huge area that people really want to talk about, which I'm all for. And then also, interestingly, where Afghans fit sort of culturally and in social justice circles, that's a big issue. Every Afghan woman I've spoken to, we all kind of look different. You can look very, very white european you can look very south asian there's this big question in this like identity crisis of are we people of color because i get i experience a ton of white privilege and yet if i say afghanistan that privilege goes out the window and so that's another theme that's really coming up that people are really ready to talk about
0: hmm. interesting and you spoke about these exercises so what are some kind of exercises that you work into your your groups or individual work Yeah.
1: Well, one thing I'm excited to do in the group setting is doing more like body-based work and more movement. And we use this word embodying, like really embodying the work that we're doing. And we can talk about it all day and we can even cry about it if it feels good. But when you are getting into your body and experiencing movement and joy and pleasure, and like, it really helps to integrate all the things that we're talking about. So I think that's more fun in a group. I've been taking dance classes for years. So I think that's more fun to do in a group rather than like one-on-one with your therapist. But then a lot of like family of origin and inner child and younger self meditations and journaling exercises and explorations that obviously we will start in group, but also there'll be like journal prompts and other kind of guided questions that people can use to see where these messages are coming from, where these thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, where they started from. And people are always surprised. And even when I've done them myself, I'm surprised by what memories come up. And I didn't even connect those two things. And wow, I didn't realize that this is why I was thinking that this was such a specific memory. I don't even think about that person anymore. But when I'm asked, where does this thought come from? You know, My mind goes straight there. And so I'm really excited to share that with everyone in
0: Mm -hmm. I wonder, can we talk a little bit more about imposter syndrome and how you work with that and how you present that to people? Because maybe some people that you work with haven't really even been able to even name that for themselves and how maybe a group could be really helpful in working through that and finding a better way to be kind of in the context of imposter syndrome.
1: Imposter syndrome is one of those phrases that's probably really annoying people because it's become so popular and recently people keep hearing it, but they're not really sure what it is. And when they hear the description of it, the idea of I'm going through life feeling like a fraud, I'm waiting for people to find out that I'm not actually qualified for this thing. Essentially, imposter syndrome is people who are successful and have every external marker of success. They have all this evidence indicating like, yeah, you seem... Fine, but they haven't internalized it and they're constantly feeling like they're discounting their success and they haven't internalized it and they don't think that that actually reflects them. And they'll say, Oh, well, I just got lucky. You know, maybe no one else applied for that job. That's why I got it. I didn't get it based on my skills and qualifications. Of course, I got it because by accident or because I got lucky. Or if they, this happens really young too. And even when you're in school or college, it causes a lot of procrastination. People are scared to start things because they're like, well, it's going to be terrible anyway. But then at the last minute, you know, they are in fact high achieving. So they do always deliver and they usually do well. But they don't internalize that good grade or good feedback because they're like, well, you don't know what it took me to get this done. So that doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And it's always like, oh, well, this doesn't actually count because X, Y, Z. And when you describe it like that, people are like, oh, yes, I totally have that. And it's not, you know, it's not an official diagnosis, and it's not necessarily a thing that you have all the time or in every setting, but sometimes you can. But I think it affects children of immigrants in particular because obviously it affects everyone or can affect everyone, but bicultural people have a special relationship to it because it's almost like ingrained into our identity when we feel like we're half one thing and half another. We're not fully anything. And like I said, those things that I do to be successful at home and the things I do to be successful out in the world, the lines are crossed and they're actually, I don't get the positive reinforcement anywhere. So it really affects people on a deeper level. And the antidote for that is, sorry to say, but it's just validation Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) and validation. People have an External validation though, not internal that, or are you talking about internal validation? Well, I'm talking
1: about the external that you start to internalize that mm. when there are people who have that much in common with you and who are doing the same thing and you look at everyone in this group and you're like, well, they're all cool. Why am I here? Then you start to run out of reasons why you can excuse it away and you say, oh, well, maybe, maybe I do belong here because these are people who are just like me. We actually even have the same, I mean, down to the same cultural identity." okay, I can't really blame anything else. Like maybe maybe I am successful and confident and nice. And when people see that transformation happen with you, it has a ripple effect. And I think, like I said, community can be very healing and people can teach that to you. Group members or a therapist, or any sort of like specific focused healing environment can do that for you more than any really good friend or self-help book or anything else. So that's why I'm so excited to provide that.
0: <laughs> the other thing I was wondering about, is this inevitable in a child of a first generation immigrant? Or are there some cases where imposter syndrome doesn't come up? And what's the difference? I mean, what it, it's a parenting difference? Is it just the community that you're in? How does that happen?
1: Oh my gosh, I haven't even gotten that far. But I feel like to some extent, it would be inevitable because it's just the nature of being a transplant. It's the nature of being an other for some amount of time. And you know, even if you're like me and you were born here, I grew up feeling and being treated as an other. I looked much more ethnic as a young kid. So there was that. And growing up in LA, people just kind of thought I was Latinx or they weren't really sure where my family was from. But from a very young age, there is that disconnect and I think there's a lot of protective factors. There's a lot of factors that go into play onto how much this affects someone, how intensely, for how long, or in what areas. For some people, they actually don't have a complex about work. They feel really proud of it. But maybe in their personal relationships or their love life, they do feel it. Particularly if they are queer or trans and they not only are bringing someone home who's not from their culture, but who also is a queer person and how their family reacts to that is you know, it's going to be different family to family, but all of those factors go into play. But that's a really good question. Someone should write a book about it, about if it is inevitable and how, how we can make the impact of it. Less.
0: Right. I mean, I probably just has to do with individual variation too, and temperament and how you respond to those things and what you carry with you and, and what yeah. you don't.
1: And I bet where your family lands. Like I was very lucky. I love my hometown. I love Los Angeles. It gets a bad rap mm-hmm. sometimes, but You know, I was in a very diverse part of the state. So that would definitely have to do with it as well.
0: Right. And the fact that you had peers, maybe of different ethnic backgrounds, but experiencing the exact same thing and you weren't maybe the only one. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, I feel lucky, but but not in the imposter syndrome way, just like actually.
0: (laughs) So if someone is a first generation immigrant, what can they do to help their child through this process of identity and figure, I mean, what are some things you think that they could do?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a really big question to answer. And I think people bring with them a lot of great qualities, a lot of pride in their community, a lot of parenting skills. They parent the way that they were parented, but there's also a lot that can work against their kids where, if this was someone being raised in their home country and everyone else was being raised the same way, great, go for it. Just to be mindful that they are in a different environment and that their peers are not necessarily gonna be raised the same way. And to have that balance between, yes, staying connected to our culture so they do see people similar to them and they do have friends who are like, oh, yeah, my parents do that too. Ugh, so annoying. Parents just don't understand, but also being okay with. And even embracing like American culture or any other cultures that their kids will be exposed to, even from a young age. I think parents hold very tightly to, we're only going to talk to our people. You know, you are going to take this lunch to school. I don't care what other people are taking. And, And then on the other side of the spectrum, there's a large group of people who completely, like parents, completely distance themselves from their culture and say like, we are white Americans now. I have both of those in my own family. But it can cause that identity crisis because the kid knows they're different, they're being treated different, but then the parents are completely denying that. So just being more good parenting is firm, but flexible. And so treating the cultural identity that way, too.
0: Yeah, I like that. Firm, flexible. It kind of makes me think of just openness and willingness to shape depending on what your child needs and their temperament too, right? And In terms of every child is different. It's not just that every child is the same who comes from the same culture. There are differences and those are important to acknowledge. I found this fascinating and I love the idea that you're doing these groups and I wish that they were available to more people. I know groups are hard to find and I'm glad that the people in your group have found them, right? And I'm sure they're really helpful for them and moving forward in their life. Everyone who reached out to me for this group was like, I don't even know if I can do this, but
1: I am so happy that you are doing this. This is so important. I haven't seen anything like this, particularly for Afghan American women. And people are telling me, even if they can commit or not, like. This is a very specific, limited group, so it's just for a short time. But yeah, all the messages I'm getting are like, please keep doing this. So I will.
0: Do you think... So, I mean, I know the Afghan community, I mean, is very known to you, right? Mm -hmm. But do you think the facilitator has to share a similar identity as the stated identity of the group? Or you don't know if that's quite as important?
1: I actually don't think that they have to. I don't think that I have to. I mean, I ran a group for people who did not share my identity. And I personally, you know, I have never had an Afghan or similar therapist. And I think sometimes it feels too close to home for people when they're not ready. And it could feel like my mom is running this group and I just like, don't want to do that. It's a matter of, you know, how ready that person feels and how close they want to be to it. But no, I don't think the person has to share the identity.
0: Got it. Okay. All right. Well, I will make sure that all of your information is on the podcast description. So if the listener wants to learn a little bit more about you or just the topics, they can click on that and learn a little bit more. Is there anything before we say goodbye that you feel like you want to add to this or?
1: Oh, I feel like we covered a lot.
0: This is really great. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being here and thanks for all the work you do. Thanks. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Ramosa Beach, Marina del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe.